Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Lifetime Value. I'm your host, Ritik. Today, I'm extremely excited to have Pablo Armida, one of the co-founders and the product lead of Grupo R5, a Colombian fintech specializing in insurance and lending to the consumer sector in Colombia. Pablo's experience has been extremely unique in the entrepreneur space where hailing from Mexico, he was one of the founding members of Ideas and Capital, one of Mexico's venture capital firms, before moving all the way to Colombia to be part of R5. During his time in the Mexican VC sector, Pablo was involved in investing in Diviendo, Turing, and NextU, which is now merged with Open English. Pablo's experience also includes extensive mentorship experience, volunteering in the startup bootcamp and Endeavor, amongst many others. And today, Pablo is here to give us a peek into the current climate of the Colombian insurance and lending industry and his thoughts on the development of the fintech landscape in Latin America. So without further ado, please welcome Pablo. Hi, Ritik. Thank you for having me. Hey, Pablo, it's been a while. It's so good to see you and um, so good to hear from you. I'm very excited about today's episode because so far I've not covered anything in the Colombian fintech sector, and I'm extremely excited to hear your thoughts about it. I'm excited as well. Yeah, yeah. I can start by telling the audience how we met because it's yeah. pretty special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so the, the, the way I met Ritik was back in what, what year, Ritik? What was it, like 2015? Yeah, I think end of 2015 or maybe even early 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So in that time, Ritik was looking for a job in Mexico and <laughs> he came looking for a job at Ideas and Capital, which is a firm that we launched, the busy firm that we launched in Mexico. And we were, we were extremely, we were extremely excited to have you here, but we were kind of eager to know why you came to Mexico. It was kind of a, <laughs> an interesting story, I would say. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the end, we, we didn't give you an offer. Honestly, I don't, I don't even remember Ooh. why. I'm <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> just kidding. But then we, we reunited at a wedding last year. Yes. And it was extremely funny because I, I didn't recognize you. You didn't recognize me. And we started speaking about what we did. And we, we began to connect the dots until we, yeah. we figured out that we actually have met each other before. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. Yeah. So thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you. Great uh, introduction, <laughs> Pablo. And perhaps you can tell our listeners a bit more about your journey. Sure. What your experience like, was like within the VC sector in, in Mexico and eventually what led you to completely changing the, the script, moving to Colombia and, and being part of R5? Sure, sure. I, I know it's kind of confusing my journey, but I started in investment banking actually my mm -hmm. career and I lasted about 10 months I think it became clear to me from the start that that wasn't the place for me I mean the culture wasn't the right fit I mean you've been through that you probably mm -hmm. know what I'm speaking about mm -hmm. so I quickly iterated and my my previous partners had ideas and capital it was back in 2013 and the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Mexico was nascent, I will say. Like there, there was nothing much, but the government was actually push, pushing this pretty, like with a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. So we got a grant from the INADEM, which if you don't know, it was a, a part of the government that supported 
everything around entrepreneurship. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that pretty much led us to actually launch a busy firm, which back then was crazy, I would say. And that's where my journey started within, mm -hmm. within this community, right? So we, we started that fund, um, which was our fund one. We invested in eight companies and it was extremely fun. For me, uh, as a young 20, 23 year old, it yeah. was amazing to actually get to know all these different entrepreneurs, get, get to do a deep dive into so many industries, right? And get to know mm -hmm. what technologies were being developed and how the trends looked. So it was extremely fun. Mm -hmm. It was also a bit of, um, what, what would I say? Like a bit of envy or not so much uh, a good, in terms of the BC ecosystem, let's say that the fund man managers didn't get pretty well. I would mm -hmm. say that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there was a lot of competition. I, I mean, of it's kind of, it's kind of weird, but like there was nothing. So everyone wanted to be like the big PC firm, right? Which yeah. I think I has changed a lot in the last years, which I think is, is amazing. But I, I got to live some bad experiences around that. And then we launched our, our second fund mm -hmm. in which we invested in seven companies. We did a little bit more investments outside of LATAM, some, in, some investments in the US. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was amazing. As I was telling you, I, I got to, to understand um, what it takes to be a great entrepreneur. Um, yeah. I, I developed some expertise around fundraising, of course, since I, since I was the one giving the terms to the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And just go through that journey with, as an investor, not, not as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. which I think is extremely different, but it's it's rewarding as well, I would say. The other thing is that entrepreneurs sometimes don't understand how hard it is to be a VC. I mean, right. most entrepreneurs just look at VCs and say like, hey, you have to write checks. That's pretty easy, right? But it's actually extremely hard. I have a lot of respect for this profession. Mm -hmm. the, I mean, the feedback loops in VC are extremely long. You can take a decision today and you figure out if it, if it was a good decision in five, six years. Yep. That can happen. And fundraising, this is fund is extremely hard. I think entrepreneurs don't understand how hard it is. So, so yeah, I mean, that's something that still amazes me today when I, when I listen to entrepreneurs just like, oh man, I wish I was a BC, so easy. I mean, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. <laughs> Perhaps yeah. you, can, you can dive a bit deeper and explain what, what makes it so difficult to fundraise as a VC, for example. I mean, I think it's extremely difficult to fundraise as a VC in Latin America specifically. Okay. We are in a region that doesn't have a much M&A activity, right? So mm -hmm. getting a, an exit for an investment is still pretty hard today. Mm -hmm. You pretty much have to, to go with the limited partners, which are the ones that fund the VCs and tell them why now is the right moment to invest and why there are going to be some exits in the, in the near future. Okay. Mm. And that's extremely hard because it, it, did, it hasn't happened before. I think in the past three, four years, there's, a, there's been a lot of movement and it's clearer now than it was back in 2013, 2015. So it's easier today than, than it was back then, but it's still mm -hmm. not easy today. I, that's why I say that I, I have much respect for these professionals. And you're balancing with, okay, I, I do have to fundraise, which is extremely hard. I have to convince these investors to give me their money. So, because I can invest better than they can, mm -hmm. because I understand this, this industry, entrepreneurship, technology, et cetera, but also I need to make the, the best decisions. 
Okay, yeah. I need to actually find this investment that's going to yield me the best returns. And it's a game, man. Like there's many VCs looking for this and you have to actually convince the best entrepreneurs to accept your investment. It's not easy. Very, very well said. Well, one fun fact also based on our first meeting, I remember that uh, the CEO of Confio had actually pitched you guys, but because you had just closed your fund, as in you were not accepting any new investment pitches, you guys ended up turning down Confio. And that yeah. was, <laughs> and the funny thing was I, that- I, I, wish you, I wish you didn't remind me that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I met, I met David at an event. Uh, I think it yeah. was a 500 startups event. Yeah. And for me, he was a superstar since I met mm-hmm. him. So I brought him to the, to the team, like he yeah. pitched us maybe a couple of times, but as you were saying, we, we didn't have the capital in that moment Yeah, and we, we had to pass on that investment and that, that happens. I mean, at yes. the end of the day, you are balancing your fundraising with your capacity to generate deal flow and execute deals. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of the same that happens as an entrepreneur, right? You're, if, if you're not profitable, you, you have a burn rate and you have to forecast when you're going to need your next funding round. Absolutely. Um, the, the funny thing is that you guys spoke so highly of Confio and David that genuinely made me want to join Confio even more. So I got, I mean, indirectly, I got to thank you guys for. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we move on to the next chapter of your life, I just had one last question. What was the methodology that ideas and capital used to invest in companies? And how was it like different from perhaps the other VCs in Mexico? Yeah, I mean, we we had an investment strategy that was different in the terms that we actually liked investing in, in companies that were not, let's say, purely tech. Okay. So we actually invested in agriculture as well. Wow. These were innovative companies. That's something that people don't understand. Like there, there's a lot of genetics around agriculture, for example, that yield better results. Mm-hmm. But we didn't solely focus on tech per se. We actually focused on innovation. So, and we, we actually... We knew that, for example, an agriculture investment wouldn't yield what a tech company can yield in terms of mm-hmm. returns. I mean, you can do a hundred X or more, maybe a thousand X in a good investment in tech. You cannot do that in agriculture. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. the upside is not, not as big. So we try to balance the upside with this, let's say, traditional sector companies with more risky sectors like tech. We did this kind of hybrid uh, portfolios. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the big di- difference. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, I, I mean, the other things we looked at are pretty much what every BC wants, which is an amazing team, a great industry that is growing, uh, like a big pain point in terms of the problem you're solving. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that you actually have to look at. And, but this was the main differentiator, I would say. Perfect. So Moving on to the, the crux of this podcast today, what led you to leave this amazing VC in Mexico <laughs> and then start from scratch as the co-founder and product lead of R5 in Colombia? Yeah, I mean, I was in BC for six years, right? So it's, yes. a, it's a long time. As I was saying, it was extremely fruitful for me. I got to, to meet amazing entrepreneurs, get to know different industries, but 
then something started to change. Like after maybe three or four years of investing, I started to get a bit impatient because the, yeah. let's say that the speed at which BC investing in Latin moves is mm. way slower than the speed at, at which you can execute a company. So yeah. I started to get a bit impatient. I, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, mm-hmm. I was humble enough to know there, there were many things that I didn't know how to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's the main thing. Mm-hmm. So then I started to get a little bit impatient. And one thing that was clear for me was that if I, if I was to partner with someone, it needed to be someone in which I, I could share principles, um, mm-hmm. the same ethics, and even maybe that same mission. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to be someone special for me and with whom I could start a new journey. Like the one I have an idea at BS and Capital. Mm-hmm. And I was extremely patient in the sense that I, I wouldn't do this with the first opportunity that came. I was extremely patient just waiting for the right opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that opportunity came last year in 2019. I met my co-founder, Fernando. Uh, he, he's actually from Venezuela, but he had been living in Colombia for eight years. So we met an Endeavor event, right? I was, um, mm. I, was pa- I was part of the Endeavor network. We're still part of the Endeavor network. And we were in an event. He was actually pitching to me, right? Wow. And he told me about R5. Some, part of, some parts of the business model of R5 were extremely interesting to me. I was actually already doing a lot of research around that in Mexico. So I invited him for breakfast. We, we kept talking. Then we had many, many Zoom calls on the weekends. We started working with projects. And I don't know, man, like maybe three months later, I was already part of the company. It was so organic, so natural that I had to fly to Colombia to meet the team. The team was already like 18 persons when I came in. Wow. And had the conversation with Fernando about joining as a co-founder. I had some expectations. He He had a number in the head. I had a number in my head. And it actually fitted pretty well. So I decided to join and actually moved to Colombia last year wow. as part of the adventure, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. That sounds like, you know, a very interesting journey. And a lot of times you hear, you know, oh, I just met this guy at some event. And next thing I know, we were creating all this billion dollar company, et cetera. And a lot of people have trouble believing that that's possible, but your testament to the fact that, you know, a lot of times it's just this random chance meeting. Yeah. And then next thing you know, you, you've changed your life just because of the idea or the person that you partner this with. And it's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I agree with that. And, but I think I, I would like to highlight something like, for yeah. example, the, the way it, it all went through is that the business model that Fernando had in his head was pretty much the same that I had. So okay. when we actually met, it was, it was special because we were talking about the same thing and we had the same mission. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that was random is that the fact that we actually met. Right. So. <laughs> right. And that's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. So what is R5? Yeah. So R5, we are, um, we, let's say we sell insurance and loans online mm-hmm. to vehicle owners in Colombia. That's what we do today. We have an interesting acquisition strategy in which let's say our flagship insurance product is called the SOAT. Yep. Which doesn't exist in Mexico, for example, it, it only exists in Colombia and it's a an mandatory insurance for vehicles. It could be a motorcycle, a car, any vehicle, you need to buy this insurance and it lasts a year. Okay. It's 12 mm-hmm. months insurance. It costs around $150. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And what we do is we actually have a machine learning algorithm that that calculates the risk of fraud. Mm-hmm. So in this way, we can actually, actually give a discount to the people that we believe are the ones that are worth of the insurance. Mm-hmm. So we have the better value proposition in, in the industry in Colombia today. Okay. So just to give an example, our average ticket for the SOAD is around $130 and yeah, most of the of our competitors sell it around 150 USD. So okay. it's pretty much based on technology, and it's a technology that we have been building for the last two years. But it's based on da- data that goes back even eight to ten years. Okay. Okay. And this is our introductory product. You would say we have a user base of more than 200,000 clients. Wow. Yeah, paying clients. It's it's been growing pretty fast, and we're extremely happy with the results. And what we're doing is to actually, once we get a client to the SOAT product, mm-hmm. we do a cross-sell to other okay. products. And today our, let's say, flagship product in the credit business unit is an asset-backed loan. So how it works is that we know that all of our 200,000 customers own either a car or a motorcycle. Yep. So we actually have a lot of data around that. And we can then underwrite them and offer them a loan. We use that car or motorcycle as a collateral to offer a extremely good rate. And that is pretty useful to the, to the customers. Very interesting. And you recently got an investment from Axion Venture Lab to continue growing uh, R5. What are your plans for the future? Or what, what is your short-term or medium-term goals? <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> We're extremely happy to have Axion as, a, as an investor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of the reason that we decided to partner with Axion is that we as a company are extremely focused on our mission. Okay? And our okay. mission is to, is to design financial products that actually focus on the financial health of our customers. So let me give you an example. When we underwrite a loan, we actually do a detailed cash flow analysis of, of, of the customer. And we actually m- make sure that the customer uses this credit for the good and not for the bad. Okay. okay. As you know, there has been a big boom of all kinds of lenders lately. Yes. And let's say that we believe that the doing lending is, is better if you do it the right way. And for us, the right way to do it is to actually improve the financial health of our customers, the financial position. Mm-hmm. So this, has, this is our mission. And that's the way we actually build every single product in the company. And I think Axion, which as you know, focuses on impact as well. Um, when, when we started talking and with, I mean, there was just a perfect fit with us, okay? Yep. So that, that, that's why we, it happened. And speaking of our plans, I mean, right now, our SOAT product was extremely, let's say that the COVID-19 was a big accelerator for our growth in terms of the insurance. And that that is because this product as a commodity is being sold probably everywhere in Colombia. You can even buy it in in the corner of your your street, anywhere in an OXO, you would say, you can buy the SOAT. Mm -hmm. But as the store is closed because of COVID, everyone started looking, going online, okay? Right. And, and we have an extremely big presence online. We, we, it just started to grow pretty fast, man. What, what can I say? So 
it's been amazing the growth we're looking at that in Colombia. I think we have a great opportunity to to do do more with this customers base that we already have. I mean, there's just so much we can do with this customers base. So so many problems they have, and so many financial products we can offer them, including micro insurance of other products we're looking at, mm-hmm. and in the loan side we can offer them many many other products to improve their financial position. So we're actually focused right now on exploiting these user base we already have and maybe increasing our footprint within their product portfolio and being being more relevant to them so that's where we're focused right now we are mm-hmm. lo- we're looking at mexico as a good opportunity but i think we, we have our strategies to, to to first let's say establish some of our business units better in colombia okay and be more let's say like a lead a lead player we're already a leader in in the insured tech space, mm-hmm. we need to become a leader in the in the lending space. And once we achieve that, we're probably going to come to Mexico. Very interesting. So th- that neatly leads to my next question. What are the differences or similarities that you see between the Mexico and Colombian fintech landscape? Yeah, sure. That, that is a good question. If, if you're talking about fintech per se, I mean, for me, one thing that was a game changer in Mexico is that the let's say the fintech law mm-hmm. actually accelerated all these developments that we're looking at today right um mm-hmm. i mean it just gave so much support so there's a lot of things happening in mexico and i don't think there's a, there are many things happening in colombia right now like the colombian market is a bit earlier in mm-hmm. terms of regulation of course the first thing to notice is that the mexican market is larger it's probably more than two times larger than than the colombian market but also, I think something interesting is happening in Mexico, and I would like to get your feedback as well. It seems that sure. the, the fintech law happened, which was amazing. I think it's incredible that so many entrepreneurs are coming to Mexico to build their, their companies. But I'm looking at, uh, at all these companies, all these neobanks, and I'm saying, hey, man, what, what are they doing? I mean, yeah. what is the real problem that they are solving? Because for me, we have to shift the conversation from opening a bank account. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think there is a problem in 2020 of opening a bank account. I don't think mm-hmm. so. I mean, mm-hmm. already does it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. And we need to focus more on what problem are you truly solving? What products are you truly offering to your clients? Mm-hmm. And for me, a, a, a bank account is not a product per se. It's pretty much like, you don't have to go like that, that was the narrative maybe three, four years ago. Like you don't have to go to the to, physically to the bank, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I'm the most excited about is what kind of products can you offer? And yep. I'm looking at all these neo banks. They're raising extremely big rounds. As yep. you know, in the past two weeks, there have been two of them that raised around $14 million each. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they are not profitable. Most of them are not profitable. So, the question I'm asking is, how are they going to sustain, like in, in Europe, the ones that went to the US, I'm talking about Monzo, maybe Revolut. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're in big trouble right now. Correct. You look at their PMLs. I mean, yeah, they have, I think Revolut is the larger one. It has $160 million in, in revenues. But if you look at the valuation, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't Correct. match, right? Correct. Correct. So we at R5, we are extremely about this. Mm-hmm. We do believe there is a huge opportunity in Mexico. 
but we are more excited about building true, like building products that actually solve problems mm-hmm. for the customer and that actually improve their financial position. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are many players that are actually doing this today, but I'm more worried about all this capital coming in into companies that at least from the outside, because I'm an outsider, it doesn't look that they're solving big problems mm-hmm. or huge problems. Yeah. I don't know what's your take on this. Yeah. You, I think for the majority of the part, you know, you hit the hammer on the nail. Um, the investment thesis that a lot of these VCs or investors are coming in is the fact that Mexico has huge unbanked or underserved population while having a very high smartphone penetration. That's essentially what they're targeting on. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the neobanks, and I'm guessing this is just the, you know, the growing pains of it, is that they're mostly targeting millennials like me and you. People who are already banked. People who would not yeah. mind having a free bank account. Nobody will say no, especially if I can set it up in five minutes. But then at the end of the day, if something were to happen, I'm always going to put my money with the Santander's, the, the baby you wear. Now, what I think the future proposition would be is that once they've sort of understood what people like me and you want, they're actually going to start learning and designing things that will be more profitable in the future. So I kind of feel like some of them are starting to specialize a bit, like giving credit cards. I personally am a bit skeptical because Mexico has never really been a very credit hungry society like most people shy away from credit cards but perhaps that will change with covid as people might need credit for till they get paid again etc etc i think with time once they realize that the millennial or the banked population whom they're targeting is very fickle they will start turning their attention and the capital that they've raised to truly solve the hypothesis that they're mentioning which I think at some point they're going to start targeting those people. But if it doesn't, you're absolutely right. They're not solving anything because being able to provide a free bank account and I just don't have to walk two blocks to my bank to physically open up a bank account is not the end goal. It's not the end product. It cannot be. I agree with you. And if you look at the, at the numbers of all these European neobanks, it, it, yeah. it just, as you said it, like the average account size is around. 300 USD, which is extremely low. Mm-hmm. With, with that in hand, the profitability of that client is extremely low, which is around 20 USD, 30 USD per client. And that just doesn't justify your valuation or your, yeah. let's say your cash flows per se. So I think what you're saying is, ex- is exactly what we will figure out in the, in the next years. Like, Correct. That's, that's a big hypothesis, right? How, how can you go from opening a bank account to actually adding value and getting more revenue from each customer, Correct. which is going to be key. And just, just to finalize this point, I think for me, it is extremely exciting that that's already happening in Mexico mm-hmm. as it has happened in more mature uh, countries, let's say. And, but I think in Colombia, it will start to happen. And I know that yep. the superintendent is already looking at fintech laws, like not, not, not as established as they are in Mexico, but they're already looking at that and testing new, regulations around this. I, I foresee this happening in Colombia as well. I think that it's just a matter of time for that to Interesting. happen. For sure. Well, moving on to the, the next section called payback period, where the guest has a question for the host. 
So Pablo, what would you like to ask me today? Sure. I mean, I, I was looking at your LinkedIn, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. We, we, we lost sight for many years. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, it was extremely interesting to look at your background, right? You went from IB trading to, mm -hmm. to, to maybe a, a radical shift, like going to Confio, Didi mm -hmm. as a product manager, mm -hmm. uh, some consulting around fintech. So for me, the, the question is, what did you learn about yourself? And mm -hmm. how are you different now by having these experiences? That is so different, right? Yeah. That's such a good question. <laughs> That's an amazing <laughs> question. In terms of like the immediate learnings was to be more like, I felt that the best way to add value to a company is to be a problem solver. It's no longer like, okay, I know five languages in programming and that's it. Like you have to get in and be able to solve problems with the hard skills that you have. And that is something that I really learned a lot more in the startup world than back when I was doing banking, like during banking, there was like, okay, my job is one, two, three. And then everything else, there's some risk guy, there's some operations guy. He's supposed to handle that. That's not my job. Yeah. And yeah, okay. in a bigger institution, that makes sense because you have the resources to delegate to different people. But in the startup world, there's, you know, everything is your job. And if you can solve the problem, that's what matters. Not so much what your title or uh, what your day to day should be. Actually, it was kind of a bit of a struggle as well, because I was like, you know, I need this report from this engineer, but uh, the engineer is just like, taking his own sweet time or doesn't know what to do. So it kind of made me be a lot more collaborative and handhold where necessary and then get the favor in return and things that I didn't understand. So that, sure, that was sure. some of the biggest thing, like just having the humility to collaborate. Another, another thing is, I think it's really important to like the vision and the mission of the founders. Again, within the banking side, you know, the vision and mission is make money. You know, like there's, there's not really, there's no really like we yeah. want to do things with the right ethics. We want to actually improve the lives of our customers through one, two, three things. And yeah. following that is something that has really opened up my mind because when you see the maybe day to day, you know, I'm, I'm working on this Excel spreadsheet on our financial model. And then eventually that leads us to get funded. I don't see the final impact on the customer, like when they actually come to the office or, you know, you talk to a DD driver and he's like, well, with this particular product that you guys came up with, my life is so much easier because of one, two, three, that, that has really made me believe a lot more in what I'm doing. Like there's, there's a reason why I want to do it because I'm actually helping somebody. So yeah, that's in that, amazing. That, that has really been some of the biggest learning lessons I've, and it might feel kind of like, wow, that, that entrepreneurial, that sort of like, oh, I want to change the world thing. I'm, I don't think <laughs> I'm going to be doing that like on the world level, but just being able to help one or two customers who are, who are in need of like a credit, but everybody has turned them down or providing them with uh, an easier way to make payments or collect their pay. That itself is enough bonus to do what I'm doing every day. I agree with you. And th thank you for sharing that. that. That is a very, very good question. Now, before we wrap up, Pablo, any advice for entrepreneurs based on your VC and current entrepreneurial endeavors? Yeah, for sure. I mean, something that has helped us a lot in our, in our five yeah. is that we are actually profitable. 
I, I extremely recommend uh, entrepreneurs to seek this, especially as you launch. Yeah. If you can get to profit as soon as you can, is it is extremely helpful. And and that is because it not only validates that your product is working, right? Mm-hmm. Like fin- mm-hmm. financially, mm-hmm. but it gives you the peace of mind and the time to plan everything better. And by, by mm-hmm. this, I mean, you don't need to raise money if you don't want to, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not like, if, if some investor gives you like extremely bad terms, you don't have to take their money. You can just yeah. say thank you. Why? Because you're in control, man. You're like you're profitable. And mm-hmm. that's something that I would recommend most of the founders to do initially, because as I was saying, it just validates so much of what you do every single day. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is when you're fundraising, it's really important to look at the terms. Okay. I, mm-hmm. I think if you need to hire a lawyer, just do it. You, you cannot take this lightly because there are so many let's say terms that are around the funding round and they are complicated to understand at the beginning, mm-hmm. but they can affect you so much in the long term that you mm-hmm. need to really understand this. And but but I'm saying liquidation preference of your investors, just just get to understand everything and get to do a benchmark of what is right and what is wrong. It gives you a good sense of which investors you're talking to. Like if they're giving you extremely bad terms, I'd rather walk out, you know? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. This, this is going to be a relationship that's going to last maybe five, six years. Mm-hmm. You, you'd rather walk out at the beginning if they, mm-hmm. if they give you those terms, right? Yeah. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs that are just chasing this fundraising as a status game. Like, yeah, I'm going to ra- raise this big round so I can be in the, I don't know, man, like in, in Forbes and I can do yeah. all these things. My, my advice is don't fall into that game. Yeah. It's way better to focus on your customer and the problems you're solving than getting into these events, going into Forbes, you, you want some status. That, that is pretty much status, right? So yep. that's pretty much my, my advice. Also, if you get a term sheet from a, an investor and you like him and it makes sense, do your due diligence. And by that, I mean, mm-hmm. speak to the entrepreneurs they invested in the past, especially mm-hmm. the ones that went wrong. That is mm-hmm. extremely important, right? Speak to the entrepreneurs that, it didn't work. The company failed, etc. And it will tell you a lot about what kind of investors you're dealing with. So that's yeah. pretty much my, my advice. It, of course, it comes from a, my experience in the venture capital industry, but also as an entrepreneur now, mm-hmm. I think this is extremely useful. Absolutely. That was very, very well said. And it's something that people take for granted, right? Or they never, like you never hear about this because you only end up hearing the success stories, So there's a lot of survivorship bias. When you see the downside, that's when you're like, okay, this is a lot more real. And as an entrepreneur, you always look up to the success stories. So true. Yeah. And, and I would say even the success stories, right? If you, mm-hmm. if you look at a company that raised a hundred million dollars, it doesn't mean it's, it, it is a success story. I mean, true. I mean, they, they have to pay the money back to the investors, right? So yeah. It, it, it depends on what you think it's success, which I think is different mm. and personal for every single person. I mean, that's extremely personal what you define as success, but you are right in, in which the only things you hear about are the big rounds. Yeah. Like the huge rounds, right? Yeah. Just my, my advice is don't fall into that. Don't fall into that uh, glamour or whatever you want to say mm-hmm. that is status seeking, going to all these events and being a panelist. Yeah. It just wasted so much time so much time you can actually use focusing on your team, focus on your clients, right? So yeah. that is pretty much the advice I'm giving today. Amazing. Pablo, 
such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Would you like to share your contact information with the listeners? Sure. And thank you for having me. It was amazing to speak to you today, Ritik. Yeah. My email is pablo.armida at grupor5.com. Mm-hmm. So pablo.armida at grupor5.com. Yep. And my Twitter is at Pablo Armida. Excellent. Thank you so much again, Pablo. This was such a pleasure. I hope to speak to you again, learning a lot more about how Colombia's fintech landscape sure. is changing. <laughs> sure, I'll keep you posted. I'll keep you posted. <laughs>